Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Hey, you know, we got interrupted two weeks ago by my long-windedness, apparently, so... uh, when you see the worksheet here tonight, not normally how I would start nor finish an outline, but we're going to talk about hell tonight. So let's talk about this sober and important topic, and we'll pick up in the middle of where we were last time. So let's ask God to get us through our outline here in a profitable way. Pray with me, please. God, thank you for getting us back together here again as we had planned, and we know those plans always need to be held loosely. We are grateful for life and breath and everything else that you give us. As Acts 17 says, we know that is a gift from your hand. We know it intellectually. We need to probably feel it subjectively much more often. So we want to stop and thank you for our relative good health, our ability to be here tonight, to be just executing the schedule of the day that we plan to be here and we are here and we're grateful for a chance for us to study issues that will allow us to answer a world that is increasingly hostile toward Christianity. Of course, they've always been and yet today it seems more blatant than before and we know that we need to have a robust response to those that ask for a reason for the hope that's in us. So give us a good study tonight, I ask, a profitable one, one that will give us the tools that we need to do a good job in the trenches of conversation with our family members, with our neighbors, with those we come in contact with every week, that we might be able to rightly defend your truth. We understand your truth is always defensible, and God, we want to be able to learn how to do that better. So thanks for the time we have together here tonight. Commit it to you, commit our minds to you, keep us focused and engaged, and allow us to learn in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we were in the middle of a rather lengthy discussion on an apologetic for hell, and I think I had clicked on this slide and we began what I think is probably the heart of the concern that the non-Christian has, the skeptic has, even those being drawn to Christ are going to have stumbling over the issue of hell. Now, there's a lot that needs to be said about this leading up to it, which we tried to say last week, the centerpiece of our theology is the cross. The cross makes no sense without God's justice, makes no sense without God's judgment, and certainly hell makes biblical sense, theological sense. But we want to talk about the reality of temporal sins resulting in eternal punishment. What's with that? And certainly that is something that all of us have wondered about, I'm sure. It's something we need to think through and be able to defend. I want to start by just thinking about what we've dealt with in terms of God's attribute. God is a just God, we say. And justice is appropriate by definition. That's what it means. If you have a just judge who's sitting on the bench and he's meeting out a just response to a crime... We understand that that is, by definition, appropriate. And if we allow in the conversations we're having with non-Christians the topic of God being just, we need to at least remind them that justice as a word, justice as a concept, is something that would be appropriate. As the biblical writers, even though they have struggled, and the characters, in this case Abraham, struggling with God and his response to the city that he didn't want destroyed, at least in his own heart, defaults to something, though he may not understand why God's judgment would come, and he keeps thinking about God sparing the city that he's pleading for, but in the end he says in Genesis 18.25, well, I know this, far be it from you, he's speaking to God now, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that 
from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And even in our ontological thinking about God, if God is, if there is a God and the God that exists, we would, we would, we would consider, and certainly he's been revealed to be a just God, then we would understand that whatever his response is to moral crimes, to failures, to transgression, to iniquity, to sin, we would say, well, whatever that is, it's going to be appropriate. That's what it means to be a just God. And we know that he's going to be doing what is appropriate. Revelation chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, in hailing the attributes of God, and I think this is a helpful passage because it's the angelic beings who we assume have a much better perspective than we do. Think about it. Angels that have never compromised, the angels that have never sinned, they were tempted in a sense as we are, not as chronically or consistently, but certainly at least we assume in this time past they were tempted and they succeeded in not falling to sin. They, they are holy in that sense. They are, in a sense, though they are temporal beings, they have a beginning, they're not holy as the thrice holy God of Isaiah 6 is, but they are, they're righteous beings, and they're looking at God's judgment on a world, and they, we would assume, would have a good definition of justice. They respond to God's punishment in this great tribulational period in Revelation chapter 16 by saying, just are you, O holy one, you're perfect, you're righteous, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments For they, now in particular here, the sins of this particular scene, they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink, which is protracted in this case, at least during the tribulational period, punishment and pain upon them for their sins. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, so here's the heavenly chorus in some ways, some angelic being saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Justice is by definition what is appropriate. God's response to sinful people, sinful infractions, is going to be just. That's what the Bible would present us with, and I think even logically and objectively, though we see it all from a sinful perspective, we would have to say we understand that justice means that what he's going to do is going to be right. So the word excessive would never be an adjective describing justice, because there would be no such thing as a perfect and holy God being excessive. He's not capricious. He's not responding in a knee-jerk way, even though the word wrath and anger is a part of it. It is not like human wrath and anger. That's what wrath means, of course, anger. It's not a response that is somehow provoked by something that the next day you would say, well, I overreacted. There's nothing excessive about God's just response to sin. It's always measured. It's always appropriate. It's always proper because it is just, and that's what justice means. The second thing I'd want to say is not only just the definition of the word justice means what is appropriate, so therefore it can't be excessive. We've got to realize when we're thinking about something like why is there eternal punishment for temporal sins, we've got to recognize that sin is, and I think you could assume this if we understand that God is not going to be excessive and he's all going to do right, then apparently there is an appropriateness to a long-term punishment for a short-term infraction. We would say this, sin is a bigger offense than assumed. We think it's not a big deal, and yet it must be a bigger deal than it is. So we've got to at least change our perspective and at least be open to the changing of our perspective. As Psalm 50 verses 19 through 21 says, speaking of people in judgment here, the psalmist saying, you give your mouth free reign for evil. 
I mean, God's, these are God's indictments. And your tongue frames deceit. And who hasn't done that? We've all said evil things and we've all deceived people with our words. You sit and speak against your brother. We've all done that. It's called slander. And you slander your mother's son. We've all done that. These things you have done. And here's what God says. And I have been silent. In other words, I have not brought immediate judgment upon your sin. Even in the garden, though there was a, an immediate relational punishment for sin, there was not an immediate retribution for sin, and therefore there was a gap between the infraction and the punishment. And in that case, here's the response of human beings in that regard. You thought I was one like yourself. You didn't think it was a big deal. You thought I didn't think it was a big deal. But now, even though it was delayed, I now rebuke you and lay the charge before you. The reality of human beings moving the sliding scale of morality, as it always does, descending little by little, even as we've seen in the last 50, 60 years in our country, as things move in a direction of increasing acceptance of evil, the reality is that people look at the judgment that everyone's afraid of in their conscience and in creation, which we've talked about, and they don't see it happen. God doesn't seem to fry us for our infractions. And therefore they think, well, must not be a big deal with God. And therefore the, the scales keeps moving. So we have to think in absolutes when we think about God's justice. And then we think, I cannot define it by God's lack of activity in response to my sin. That's a super important place for us to begin once we begin with the idea of justice being appropriate, just as a word, as a definition. Sin is a bigger offense than assumed. Why? Because I think we need to think for just a moment about the gravity of a response and the problem is going to correspond to the one sinned against. The gravity of the problem and therefore the response and what makes that an appropriate response to the sin is going to correspond to the one that is sinned against. As Psalm 51.4 reminds us, against you, here's David talking about his own sin, even though he just killed Uriah and bedded down Uriah's wife and took her as his own, he says, ultimately, I know that's a sin against you. You've made a commandment and I violated a commandment. Therefore, I've violated something that you've asked me to do. We've, I've violated my relationship with you. I've violated your standard. And ultimately, this is an ultimate statement because clearly he did sin against Uriah. He sinned against Uriah's family. He sinned against a lot of people in what he had done. And yet he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be, here's the right thing now, God's justice, you might be justified. No one's going to say that you are not doing the right thing or the appropriate thing. No one's going to charge you with excessiveness in your words and blameless in your judgment. And he knew that the capital offense for adultery was something on the books in the Mosaic law. And if God were to kill him for that, he said it's appropriate. And even the judgments that did come, warfare in his house, the kind of uprising that would come with his son, Absalom, and all the things that would happen in his family because of the death of the child. All those things, he says, all of that's appropriate. I recognize that. For what? Well, I guess ultimately for adultery and then for murder. But the reality is the picture of sin is one that is appropriately responded to in ways that seem big because God is the one who's sinned against. And and the illustration is always helpful, in my mind at least, that you can punch someone in the nose and expect a judgment for that. It's called assault and battery, right? You're battering someone with your fist. 
But it really is going to depend, the judgment, based on the context and the person you punched in the nose. If you punch someone in the nose in a parking lot because you are fighting over a parking space, that's one thing. If you, par- if you punch a sheriff in the nose, that's another thing. If you punch a judge in the nose, if you punch a, a, a governor or a president in the nose, these are entirely different kinds of responses that you're going to have based on the one you sin against. And that's the problem. We have to do the one to whom we have to do, this one we have to give an account, is the ultimate one of the universe. And that's the problem that we need to start painting in our own minds, that sin is a sin ultimately against God, and God is a God of tremendous worth and value, and therefore the gravity of my sin continues to increase because of the one I've sinned against. Is it excessive then to say that I'm going to get years in jail as opposed to a fine and a ticket, depending on who I punched in the nose. Well, yeah, that's just how it works because there is a associated penalty based on the value and worth, context, the honor, the rank of the one that you punched in the face. And all of our sin is a punch in the face to God. And if you think about that, you don't want to punch God in the face. And that's the idea of Psalm 51.4, that this is a sin and a violation of God's honor. Number four, we need to think through this. There are very degrees of sin in the Bible. And I think this is important because so often we quote James or we quote Romans 3 and we say, well, sin is sin. And if you've grown up with that mentality, you need to say, I understand sin is sin. And if you have, as I said last week or two weeks ago, if you have a computer and there's a virus on it, well, then that computer hard drive or that system is it's infected. It doesn't matter how bad it is. It's not going to be sold or shouldn't be sold, at least to you, if it's infected. So we understand that if you're a windshield maker, manufacturer, if there's a small chip in the middle of the windshield, it's rejectable as much as if it were smashed and you dropped it in the corner of the warehouse. It doesn't matter how bad it is. If it's broken, it's broken. And so sin, as it would say in James, you can keep all the laws you want and break one and you're guilty of the whole thing. What are you guilty of? You're guilty of not keeping the law. Keeping the law is what we need to do. We need to present God with a perfect human life. You didn't do that. You could be Stalin, you could be Hitler, Mussolini, you could be Jeffrey Dahmer, you could be eating people and cannibalizing them and say, well, that's bad, and you're a sinner and in a category of not measuring up. Or you could be someone who's very nice, but you slander your brother and you deceive people with your words. And either way, the Bible says you're in a category of not measuring up to God's standard. All that's true. But when we start thinking about excessive punishment, we need to think about the reality of the differentiation of sin in the Bible. So I just want to start with that concept. It's going to carry into where we're headed. Exodus 22, 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose, his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field, he must make restitution from the best of his own field and from his own vineyard. So I'm negligent in letting my ox out into your field and he eats what you have grown. I'm supposed to now bring the best of my field and make restitution to you. Okay, so that's negligence. It's not a very nice thing for me to be is negligent about your stuff and allowing my ox or whatever it might be, my goats to eat your field. On the other hand, Leviticus chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 says, if I've sinned and realized my guilt, I'm going to restore what I took. Maybe I'm a robber. I stole from you. I went into your field at night and I stole your stuff. Or I got it by oppression or some kind of, uh, of extortion. 
the deposit that was committed to me or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he'd sworn falsely, I lied about it to get it from you. Well, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him who belo- to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So now it's not just making restitution with good stuff from what I've got. It's now adding 20% to it. Now I have to give more back. Why? Because it's not just how I stole your stuff. Now I did it with an intention because I did something that was morally worse than just letting my animal out. The variations in degrees of sin is an important thing to start discussing with people and recognizing that our law code, it follows this pattern. There's a penal code. There's a code that shows what the punishment should be for the crimes that are committed. And to think about the variation of that is a very important thing. And for us to go in our minds to places like Romans 3 and say all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, or we think about uh, James saying if you broke one, you're, you're guilty of it all, or you start talking about Jesus saying, you know, if you look at a woman, it's like committing adultery with her. If you look at her lustfully, uh, or if you say in your own heart, raka, that Aramaic term for you, you're a knucklehead. If you say that, it's as guilty as if you have killed them right? Well, I, I, I put words in Christ's mouth. He didn't say that. He says, you're liable to the judgment, right? To the Sanhedrin. You could go before the council and be found guilty. Why? He's not saying that they're all equal. They're not equal and there's not an equal penalty for all of those. But what he is saying is that it's wrong and on the same scale. You've heard it said, as long as I don't do that, I can do some of these things on the same street, as long as I don't go all the way down to the end of the cul-de-sac. And what he's saying is, no, you can't do that. But there are differentiations. And all I'm saying is those three proof texts in James, in Matthew, and in Romans cannot be used to say all sin is the same. All sin is not the same. And all sin is not responded to the same in our law code. And it's not responded to in the same way in the law code of the Old Testament or even the punishments that are meted out in the discipline of the church in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 19 is another example of this. Verse 4. This, the cities of refuge that he just explained, which are six cities, three on the east side and three on the west side of the Jordan River, where you could run if you had killed someone, said, is the provision for the manslayer, for the one who's committed manslaughter, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, well, then you can run there to the city of refuge. It's like you being convicted of manslaughter. Well, you have to be in prison now in one of the cities of refuge. And if you escape from there or you get out of there, you try to go back to your life as normal, then you could be subject to being executed. So you have to stay there. That's that's a loss of your freedom for manslaughter. But Numbers chapter 35 verses 19 through 21 said, well, let's say you pushed someone out of hatred or you hurled something at him because you were angry or you lied in wait for him so that he died or an enemy struck him down with his hand so that he died. And then he's, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. And it doesn't matter where he meets him. You can't run to the city of refuge. Just like we would say murder in the first degree, at least in the olden days, it used to be that you could be executed for that because God says if you slay the blood of a man you should by man have your blood spilt and you should be executed matter of fact the Bible says the land is polluted until that blood is shed by the judicial authorities of a land and that's still a law that's on the books from the Noahic covenant that is what God expects from a civil society and the ground is going to cry out from the blood of the innocent who've been killed at least innocent in judicial sense in a society until the blood of the murderer is killed but nevertheless the point is still there are things even with special circumstances you can be convicted and go on death row in California but if you get killed if you kill someone through negligence or in something that would be deemed manslaughter well you might go to prison for that but 
you're not going to have the same penalty meted out. And the Bible, we get all these things from the Bible. Matter of fact, the idea of malice aforethought, that's a phrase that comes right out of the King James Bible from the law code that reminds us that there are degrees of sin. And so that's going to set us up for where we're going in the apologetic for the excessiveness of sin. The first thing that you need to realize after you think about the varied nature of punishments in the Bible in terms of law code, which is the basis for civil law code. There are three uses of the law. little sidebar here for a second. You know the law is to be used in three ways. One way is to lead me to my need for the gospel. In other words, I look at the law of the Bible and I recognize I need grace. Just like David saw adultery is a sin and there's punishments for that, that should lead me to repentance. And that repentance is something that leads me to want God's grace and to cry out for his mercy. That's the first use of the law. Second use of the law, and this is the way theologians have liked to divide them up, is a way for us to think about the way the law provides a template for societal justice, which is what I'm trying to talk about here. That's the idea. The idea of the concept of the law being something that is supposed to make civil society civil by having a variation of punishments for varied degrees of sin. Third use of the law is for us to know what God's sanctifying law should be. In other words, the things that he approves of. And if he doesn't want us to muzzle the ox while he's threshing, as Paul says, that's so you can learn that the worker's worthy of his wages. And in that context, he applies it to pastors ought to be paid a living wage so that they are serving you spiritually and studying and shepherding and guiding and counseling and administrating in the church and they ought to be paid. The idea, though, is that the law code is used in those three distinct ways. For us to govern, number three, our sanctification. Number two, to see the varied judicial penalties for sin in society. And we have picked those phrases right out of the English Bible to set up our society here in America, which is changing quickly. And then the first use, of course, is the one we like to use in evangelism when we talk about the fact that the law exposes our need for grace. Three uses of the law. I'm talking about the second one here, which is going to lead me to an ultimate sense of why hell seems like such a big deal. Well, one reason it's a big deal is because we're sinning against God. We understand this. God is going to be equitable in that justice that he meets out, in part because as someone is evaluated in the decisions that they make, there's going to be varied sentences. That's what the Bible teaches. And most people I find who grow up in church never even think about this. They never hear about it. And it's one of the reasons a lot of people jump ship on even believing in the doctrine of hell, which is an amazing turn of events. I guess the cults have always wanted to shy away from the reality of judgment. I mean, the judgment that Jesus said, think about it. He said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. And after that, there's nothing he can do. Fear the one who can, after he kills the body, can toss your soul into hell. These are the kinds of things that Jesus said. Next phrase, yes, I tell you, fear him. That's the reality of Jesus' teaching. You can't find the modern cool hip pastors or the theologians that are so thoughtful high up in the ivory towers that they're writing their commentaries in anymore holding to the doctrines of Christ. And as some have rightly said, you think your morality is higher than Christ's morality. You think your sense of justice is better than God's sense of justice. What Jesus is clearly articulated, which of course I quoted all the time and every pastor who knows anything about the New Testament does, and that is that Jesus talked more about the severity of hell than he ever talked about the blessedness of heaven. So it's important for us to realize this should never be an abandoned doctrine, even just because it's distasteful. It's distasteful. I'll agree with that. But it's a big deal because... God is a just God. My sin is a big deal to him. I'm sinning against him. That makes it even a bigger deal. The things that I've done, some have been small on the scale of retribution. Some have been big on the scale of retribution. And then when I go and stand before him, he's going to judge me based on that, according to that, in keeping with that, with equity as it relates to that. 
verse 12 of Revelation 20 at the great white throne prophecy. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, plural. I know there's at least more than one there. And then another book was opened. That's a third book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Well, I've already learned this in the book of Revelation. That book of life is super important. It's the Lamb's book of life. If my name's in there, I get all my sin appended to the cross, and I don't have to be punished for those. If my name's not there, well, now you're in the right line, and the books are open. And the books are open according not only to what I've done, which apparently are recorded in this scene in some kind of book. There's a log of my deeds, but also according to the standard. And I'm sure there's lots of other things that are going to be factored into that. We've looked at them before, and maybe a couple of them we'll get into tonight. But the idea is all of that becomes the foundation for each individual person's judgment. Therefore, like the book I wrote, some of you have read, the not, I don't know if it's the last one, but fairly recent book, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. I have a whole chapter in there. I think I have three chapters in there trying to deal with the idea of what's with this hell reality and the myth of, I think everyone's going to have the same terrible experience there. Well, terrible is true for everyone's experience there. We know that, but it's not the same terrible experience for everyone. Why? Because of concepts like this throughout the scripture. Let's carry through uh, with a few other passages. How about this one? Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. Here's one of the mitigating factors, which mitigates in part and may make it more severe depending on who you are. Luke 12, 47, and the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Now, this is a parable, an illustration. I get that, but he's trying to illustrate God's coming judgment. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Why? Because here's the principle of judgment. To whom everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So we know this. You could have two people doing the same exact sinful thing. That's the parable here. And have two different kinds of judgment based on what they knew. Knew the master's will. Now that's the argument of the book of Romans as it relates to God's judgment. God's judgment, people were saying, and not coming to us because we're children of Abraham, the Jew, Jewish people said. It's going to come on those heathen Gentiles. Well, Paul turns that on its head by saying, well, hey, you who had the law, you did the same things that they did. And you need to recognize this, your judgment's going to be worse because of the knowledge you had, because God's going to judge you according not only to what you did, but he's going to judge you, Romans chapter 2, according to what you knew. And therefore, two people could do the same exact thing. And depending on how much they knew of the will of God, the judgment's going to be more. Everyone wants to talk to me about the guy in the bush, right? The guy who lives in the jungle, the guy who's never been to church. And they always want to obfuscate and say, I don't really want to respond to your gospel because what about that poor guy in the jungle that doesn't know anything about this? Well, the response of Romans is he does know about this because he has access to creation and he's got a conscience. And both of those speak to the same things I'm telling you in the scripture. They don't say it with the same amount of detail. But in Romans chapter two, it says their conscience is bearing witness that the law of God is written on their heart. He says, now what about you that have studied the law of God? Well, your judgment is going to be even more severe if you do the same things and don't cling to the mercy of God in Christ, which is the whole point of the book of Romans. You need to get to the place where you realize and recognize like David did when he saw his sin, I need the mercy of God. And now we know in the New Testament, the mechanism of the mercy of God, you need to put your trust in Christ who's absorbed the penalty of God for you. And again, there's the idea and it's the linchpin. I got mad about it last week or whenever we were together because it's an increasing departure from the core of what the cross is about. Penal substitutionary atonement. The idea that Christ absorbed the penalty of sin for me on the cross. So Christ saved me from God. No one likes that anymore. 
seems too harsh. I want butterflies and rainbows and kittens. And I, I want a theology that doesn't feel like God's mad at me. Well, the problem is, if you read the Bible, you realize his wrath is a real thing aimed at my sin. And it's even aimed at my sin and stoked into a brighter kind of red-hot wrath, the Bible would say. Not capricious, not, not kicking the dog kind of, of, of responsive anger, but a measured anger that's increased based on what I know. So varied sentences are based on the severity of the crime. Is it longer than I'd want it to be? Absolutely. I have to stand back with the angels and say, God does just things. His judgments are always just. I just have to recognize, as Abraham did, the God of all the world, the judge of all the earth, is going to do justly. But I know this, not going to treat everybody the same, because there are varied crimes, moral crimes, and there are varied sentences. Think about James 3.1. Even work within our own society here where we do have Bible teaching, where we do know about the Bible, we do know the stories. Okay, think about this, James 1, 3. Not many of you should become teachers. Here's one thing that should make you afraid to even think about ministry. He says, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now that's an idea about the Bema Seat of Christ because we're talking about Christians here, but the same principle of evaluation and response from God applies. And it applies based on not just judgment at the great white throne, but rewards at the Bema Seat of Christ, as we call it, 1 Corinthians 3, based on the knowledge of the person, what they had or did not have in their mind. The knowledge. There's always a varied judgment. In the words in our English text of James 3.1, strictness. Is God going to be more strict with some people than others? Absolutely he will. He's going to be more strict with some simply because of the severity of their sin, but he's also going to be stricter based on how much knowledge you have. Many mitigating factors throughout the scripture. I've dealt with those at length elsewhere, but the idea of varied sentences is important. Let's talk about this. The logical consequence. Just trying to give you another technique, if you will, a biblical logical technique for thinking through how you respond to the person who's talking to you and saying, I don't like this hell concept. Well, I think you should have some sympathy. I don't like it either. And I gave you an illustration before, but it's like the skunks who all stink to the homeowner. We have skunks near our house. I don't want to get too personal here, but if you come over to our house and it's smelling bad, it's not us. It's the skunks. We have skunks. They live outside the ditch there behind our house. That doesn't sound like a great place I live next to the ditch. Let's call it a ravine. Does that sound better? But the skunks live out there. Now, some nights the skunks, and I know they're in my driveway. I know they're in my yard. I try not to show my wife the security camera footage, but they're, they're close to the house. And some nights they squirt their, their magic potion juice, and it's worse than other nights. Now, I don't know how you respond if you're a skunk. I guess you get used to that. You get used to your own stink. But the reality is, among us as stinkers in the world morally, we can look at the Dahmers of life, the Mussolinis of life, the the Ted Bundys of life, and say, well, they really, really stink. So there's always this sliding scale in our morality. But the problem is we all have a problem, a problem of sin that God has to rightly respond to with judgment either on the cross or individually, per deed, per word, per motive. There's a lot of things in Scripture that are discussed. But I want to talk about what is, why is this a logical consequence? Well, let's think through a few things. Here's what the Bible says we have a problem. We have a problem about hostility toward God. Preach a lot about this. It seems like we really emphasize this and highlight this in more and more expository preaching in the modern era because we have this increasing aversion to authority, which according to Paul wrote to Timothy and said, you ought to expect this. In the last days, you're going to have difficult times in part because they're going to hate authority. Children aren't going to want to obey their parents. You're going to have a general 
boasting and not just loss of civility and coarsening of society, but you're going to have a, a, an increasing hostility toward, toward authority. To read a lot of that list there in terms of themes, you could put a theme on the fact that we've got a real problem as we near the end of this season of reality before Christ comes back with a hostility toward authority. Now, the problem is if you have a culture that loves to look for flatlined organizations and we want everyone to have a democratic voice and no one at the office should have more authority or a bigger paycheck or whatever it might be, well, then you look ultimately up at God who's the center of all things. He's being worshiped. He has all authority. He's in charge of everything and he knows everything. Right? We don't want we don't want cameras up at stoplights because we don't want to get a, a ticket for something we actually did. And we look at the reality of what the gods the, of the Bible says that everything's laid open before God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You tell a non-Christian that alone, and you start to have a repulsion to that. So the hostility toward God we see it everywhere in Scripture. But I, just to give you and again just some biblical thoughts on this, I, I, I take you to Psalm two one through three. There's a rage about humanity that's only promised to get worse, and we're, we're experiencing it now. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against the Lord, the triune God, and against his anointed. That's the Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah. And this is prophetic, a messianic psalm, right? Ultimately, the ultimate anointed is not David, not the king of Israel. The ultimate anointed is, is Christ, and we see that today. What do they want with Christ? Well, they want to burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's a verse you're not going to find on, in the Christian bookstores on a frame. When God said, Jesus says, I tell you who to fear. Fear the one who, after he kills the body, can toss the soul in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You're not going to see those concepts. Or that, even as we see in terms of what marriage is today, where Jesus says, yes, he created the male and female. There's two boxes on every birth certificate, or at least there ought to be, according to Christ. Who wants that kind of constriction? We don't. We want the Facebook world where you can be whatever you want. That's the world we live in. They want to burst these constrictive bonds away. Why? Because God is this authority. And when someone speaks for that God in authority, they want to get rid of it. They don't like these are strictures they want to get out of. It's a straitjacket they want to burst out of. That's a hostility toward God and his authority. And so if we want to think about the real problem of sin, as gentle as it may be, I can only imagine how attractive Eve must have been. When the beautiful Eve reaches out to grab an apple, it's an act of open rebellion against the God who made her. Think about it. And she says, I don't give a rip what God thinks. I know better than God. And in her rebellion, you can look at it like we look in the mirror when we justify our own sin. The Bible sees it as rebellion against God. It's gotten much more pungent in terms of the moral kind of hostility toward God in our day. But all of that really, sin really can boil itself down to that kind of insubordination against God. So all sin is that way. Just like David, right? Can be a man after God's own heart, but still here's this rebellion against God and his law. You can see that in every sin from Eve all the way to the sins that we've committed this afternoon. It's a hostility toward God. And when the non-Christian is hostile toward God, one thing they forget is that God is the provider of all that's good. You think about that. I, I, I listen to several things and I like to do this just, I guess, because I'm doing apologetics. Usually I don't for a weekend sermon spend much time watching what the, you know, the intellectual elite or the cool cultural trendsetters or the influencers as they call them today in social media. I usually don't care much or spend much time listening to what they say, but I do when I prep for apologetics night because I want to hear what they, what's, what's the thought, the rational thought. And I can't help 
course, coming from my worldview and looking what I know about the Bible, these people that are speaking such just dismissive, even if it's not mean and hostile, which most of the time it is, the guys that get a lot of clicks on their YouTube channels, but this dismissive attitude toward God. When I look at their their, their high-definition videos and I look into their eyeballs and I see these lenses that have been crafted and designed and the eyelashes and eyebrows that sweep away sweat when they're at the gym and I watch them wagging their finger at the ridiculous concepts of a God who might judge us one day with fingers that have been created by God and fingernails that have been designed by God not only to do things with the, in the world but to protect their fingers all the things that God has done and given them they don't see that, the hypocrisy of it. I mean, I listen today to these guys. I just thought, if, if you could see the things that you have received from the God who created you, and it makes no sense for you as we started this lecture series, thinking that somehow you are just the result of a cosmic explosion. That's an amazing naturalistic uh, hubris to, to think such things. But let's, whatever, I'll concede that that's what many of them, they truly believe. They fight and suppress the truth and the unrighteousness. But the idea of look at what you've received from God, that God that you hate, the God that you reject, the God that you want to be free from is the God that provides all good things. So many familiar passages in this regard, but they're not, not a bad idea to keep them in your minds. Matthew 5, 44 through 45. I mean, our kindness, which is what love is. I'm being kind and generous. I care about the well-being of people that don't like me. I say, love your enemies. That's the idea. Kind to those that don't even like you and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you can be a uh, chip off the old block. You can be sons of your father who's in heaven. You can act like him because that's what he does. He makes his son, this ball of fusion that's perfectly situated in the sky to warm the skin of the farmer as he watches his crops burst up through the soil so he can feed and stuff the face of his wife and his family. That God that created that son makes it rise on the evil and the good. Those who give thanks and those that despise the God who gives it to them. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He waters the crops of those who hate him and those who love him. The digestive tract that God designed allows me and I hope you who love God and thanks God for your meals to process your food just like the guys I see that are ripping on God all week long and saying that it's a joke and God's a jerk and if there is a God, I don't care. And all the things you hear today, people saying as they influence the minds of people in our society to tell them to break the bonds and the strictures of any moral code from a God who you really shouldn't be afraid of anyway. They get everything from the God who made them. We get to enjoy a meal. They get to enjoy a meal. They enjoy friendship. We enjoy friendship. These are gifts that God has made, as the Bible says, that he created to be enjoyed by those who believe and know the truth. But God is a God who's good to them. And they openly and flagrantly rebel against the God who gives them these things. As James 1, 16 through 17 says, and you know this passage, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And that's the problem. The deception of people that don't see the good things being given by the source of all good things. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing is from above. That's the biblical answer to anything good, and it should make perfect sense in the mind of even someone objectively looking at reality. Where do we have the beauty? Where do we have the symmetry? How do things hold together from, from you know, the astronomical movements in the sky to Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty to the holding together of, of leptons? I mean, the idea of a God who makes everything work the way it does, everything good, every good meal, every good sunset, it comes down from the father of lights, speaking of the, of the lights of the sky. That's probably what we're referring to here. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That God is consistently kind and gracious. And he has been giving for a long time to those that rebel against his authority and leadership. 
The Bible says that that gracious God has set out to pursue sinners, and he has. That's the picture in Scripture. There's a general call and effectual call. If you're a good Calvinist or you want to think in those terms, that's great. I'm with you on it. There's a sense in which God pursues everyone, calling everyone everywhere to repent, Acts chapter 17. I understand that. I get that. God is that kind of God. And you need to realize that that action of God sending a conscience and sending the beauty of creation and and causing the, the sun to rise like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and going across the sky to quote Psalm 19, that God that gives all those good things is a God who says this. This is his disposition. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good and follow their own devices. I mean, that's the picture of the God who reaches out to your neighbor and allows them to drive that that SUV into their garage at night and pay their bills and their mortgage and allows them to have children and, and, and they're fertile and they bring kids home from the hospital or they have grandkids that come visit them. All of that is a gift of God with their RV in the driveway. All of that is a God thing. And the Bible says that's like God reaching out to these people. His kindness is to lead them to repentance, but they they don't respond. And here's the picture God wants us to have in our minds. This is the God-breathed picture. Here I am, here I am, here I am. And the Bible paints this picture. You start thinking about God, hell. Why would God, why is there a hell? Why would God punish anyone? We've got to get the biblical perspective, which is the right perspective. It's the objective perspective. So they reject in a very clear and, and forthright way. They reject it. Not only is there hostility, there's a conscious act of rebellion, of turning against this God. Think about 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 19. This is a helpful way to put it. Today, now you know the scene of this, of course, Samuel is talking about the rejection of the people not following God's direction about a theocracy. They wanted a monarchy because they wanted to be like everybody else on the neighbor, in the neighborhood. And, and here's the response. But today, you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distress. Every time you didn't get a cancer risk, you know, a diagnosis. Every time you didn't get killed in traffic. Every time that a lightning bolt didn't strike you dead. God is saving and upholding the world. All things hold together in Christ, and that's the God that you have rejected. I'm just piling these passages on for you to see from a biblical perspective. That should get you angry. It's the thing that shoot 'em up movies are made of. That's why you cheer when someone gets shot. That's really mean of you. Why do you want the bad guy to get punched in the face and get his teeth knocked out? I saw something that recently, and I'm thinking I'm cheering on someone knocking someone's teeth out. That doesn't seem very godly of me, and yet it's very godly. Think about that. That's the just indignation against people that have had all of these advantages, all of these gifts, and turn and bit the hand that fed them. That's the picture in Scripture. You rejected your God, and the God the whole time that you're rejecting and hating and wanting to be free from is the God who's upholding you and saving you and protecting you and providing for you and digesting your food, the active participation of God in his creation. Jeremiah 2.13, familiar passage. I mean, that last one may not have been all that familiar, but here's one. My people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me. They turn their back on me. I am providing all that they need, and I could have provided them so much more that was so much more profound and better, the fountain of living water. And instead, they've gone and, and, and sucked the dirt clods. I mean, that's the picture. They've gotten cisterns, these wells they've dug out for themselves. I'm the spring of living water. They could be frolicking in the waterfall, in the oasis in the desert, and instead they're sucking and licking on rocks in the desert. That's the picture. They've broken cisterns they've dug out that can hold no water. They're, they're eating dirt when I'm providing them a banquet. That's the picture. And when you think about when God says enough, 
hell doesn't make sense at that point? We'll look at it. We're going to still build this apologetic for hell. But at that point, you've got to see what's happening. A rejection of a very, very generous, long-suffering, gracious God. Number five, a rebellious obstinance. They just crossed their arms and said no. And here's the passage I quoted it ahead of time. But Romans 2, 4, and 5. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience? Well, look at all those things. His kindness, what he's given you. His forbearance, he's hung in there with you. His patience, that's a great word, macrothumia, the compound word in Greek. Macro, long, big, thumia, anger, hot, thumus, thermometer. God has waited so long. That's why the angels finally say, hey, just and righteous are your judgment, God. You did what's right. They deserve what they're getting. And that'll be said at the great white throne judgment. Whether it's Hitler or your grandmother, everyone's going to say, this is the right thing. That's why I think, though a lot of pastors don't agree with me on this, I think this is exactly right. I think when you read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that is the picture of the judged. They get it. There's a clarity that comes upon them. I mean, he's not shaking his fist at God saying, I don't belong to be here. He says, you know what? I just wish if there's grace available to the living, please send someone back. I got five brothers. I don't want them to come here. He's not trying to make a deal to get out. He may want his pain mitigated by a little bit of water on the tongue of Lazarus to be dropped on his, on his tongue. But he doesn't sit there and say, I don't deserve any of this. They may say that now at the thought and prospect of hell, but they won't say that, I don't believe, when they get there. A little speculative theology. Don't you know that God's kindness, the whole point of the kindness, the whole point of him holding out his arms and providing all of this for you is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, here's the picture I'm trying to paint. You are storing up wrath, anger, God's just retribution. You're storing that up for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. These are the things you're never going to have the non-Christian ever think through unless you help them think that think it through. They just won't see it. Hell to them is a caricature. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's a harsh God. It's about, and I heard it so many times this week, it's about control. That's what religious people do. They want to control everybody. And so this thought of hell is this burning judgment and we're trying to scare you so that we control you. I don't want to control anyone. Do you want to control the people in your, I mean, it's not about control. This is about the objective reality of justice. Just like we want all of our judges on the bench to be equitable and do what is right. God of the universe is the judge who will do what is right. But when they respond to his kindness and his gracious, patient forbearance with continued rebellion, the Bible says you're just storing up for yourself an increasingly long, painful, I mean, I guess it's all going to be eternally long, but painful, increasingly severe punishment. It's going to begin there at the day of God's wrath. One day it will be revealed. It's on its way. That's how the book started. Romans chapter 1, right? Verse 16, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. I mean, that's the point. His righteousness is revealed from heaven in Christ, but his judgment is on the way. It's like the rain has already fallen. The ark is there. It's ready. No drops have hit the ceiling yet, but it's on its way and you're storing up more of it for yourself. And again, there's another verse you might want to add to the point of varying sentences. So let's think of it this way. Logical consequences, if you've got a God, just like you might see in some even, uh, I mean, you don't have to be a shoot 'em up uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger film lover. You could be even your girl films about the girlfriend or what. I mean, I don't watch them, so, but I'm going to play dumb here. I only had to watch so many in my married life. But when, when the girl with her nose in the air doesn't get the guy because she's been a snooty whatever, and now he, get, he rejects her after rejecting after she's rejected him and he walks away with the humble gal, you all go, yeah, 
and you hate on her. Why? Right? Because you think the withdrawal of someone kind to someone who's exploited that kindness through rebellion, you think, hey, you in your prideful stubbornness have, you don't deserve this nice guy. Right? Even you girls are vengeful. You see that, what I'm trying to say to you right now? Hosea chapter 9, verse 17. God will reject them. And of course, this is a historical situation in the book of Hosea and the northern tribes of Israel early on. It's an early prophet, minor prophet. But all of it is the principle that it's true. The true principle that will even be true on judgment day. And that is he rejects because they haven't listened. They haven't responded. They haven't understood. They haven't taken the conscience, creation, and scripture to heart. I mean, it's clear. Even if you don't have scripture, you got conscience and you got creation. They didn't listen. And so in that historical situation, they're going to be wanderers among the nations. And certainly they ended up doing just that. So God is saying, I'll reject you then. Now that we've already created a equation where that's not good because he's the supplier of all good things. What everyone wants to experience in hell, once they get God out of the equation, they won't experience. Why? Because God has to be in the equation for you to enjoy any of those things. That's why those atheistic posters that say, hey, don't worry if there is a hell, you'll be in good company. There will be no company in hell. There'll be no grace in hell. There'll be no mercy in hell. There'll be no gifts of God because God will reject and with him go his gifts. Classic passage, been through our partner's discipleship program. You committed this to memory, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Every phrase needs to be understood. This is a retribution of punishment. It lasts forever. It's away from the God that they did not want. That's the passive aspect of God's judgment. And the glory of his might. What's the glory of his might? Sunsets, smiles, hugs, butterflies, kittens, horseback riding on the beach. I mean, I don't know, whatever it is. All of that is the glory of his might. As it says in Isaiah 6, right? The whole earth is full of his glory. All those echoes of his goodness is in his creation. Is it fallen, fallen world? I get that. But that's a picture of a God who then says, fine, rejection, okay, reject you. Had my hands out all day long. And now you're going to get what you want. There's a brief apologetic for hell, as unpleasant as that was to talk through. Turn your worksheet over. Let's talk about the reasonableness of the biblical heaven. I put that in quotations, of course, because heaven is a place where God dwells, a dimension where God dwells. Whatever it is that God inhabits, that picture of him, First Timothy 6, dwelling in unapproachable light, is his home. I mean, it's been messed up with the stench of Satan's fall and all the rest. And he's going to make a new one of those. But the real issue for human beings is living on earth. There's a new earth coming. We talk about it all the time. And it's popularly called heaven, but that's a bit of a misnomer. The only way that it's heaven in any biblical or theological sense is because the dwelling place of God is among men. Particularly, I believe clearly, because Christ, the glorified Christ, dwells there in the middle of it all. God the Father, still in heaven, spirit, still omnipresent all over his creation. But the embodied deity, the fullness of glory and bodily form is on earth. And in that sense, I guess you could say heaven is on earth, but heaven is still in heaven. So there's a new biblical reality coming that's not just the judgment that we've talked about, but I want to talk to my non-Christian friends about the reasonableness of there being this place that's a place of good. And in that sense, it may even be that the Muslims have a better word for it because they use the word. It's not a bad word. Jesus used the word that harkens back to the garden. Of course, this is going to be better than a garden, but they like to talk about paradise, which is a helpful metaphor. metaphor. It's a helpful word, descriptive word, because it describes something much more 
concrete. Nevertheless, in our circles, we like to call it heaven. That's why I put it in quotations. I'm just trying to explain the quotation. Hopefully you know that. You've been well taught, biblically taught. Number letter A. Of course, based on all that I've just said, all of the things that we've just talked about have at some level been applicable to all of us. We should get all the things that we just talked about. We've rejected God. You say, well, I don't reject him now. But you have and you did. And even as a Christian, you still sin. So... How do we get there? Well, all this, of course, and this gets back to the foundation of the gospel. It's all because of God's grace. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, Psalm 103, verse 8 says. He is slow to anger. We realize he's that way toward non-Christians, and he's that way toward us. And he's abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's not right. He should. He's not. Are you not a just God? Well, that's the thing. According to Romans, the only way he can be the just and the justifier of those who put their trust in him is to somehow transact the justice of God in some other mechanism, and that's got to be Christ. So he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. You should deal with criminals according to their sin if you're going to be just, but there's a way around that. The picture was through a dead animal in the Old Testament, but the reality was through a dead Messiah on a cross. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities, though he ought to. That's the whole point of Scripture, isn't it? At least from our perspective, is that there would be a way that I wouldn't get penalized for my sin. And that's the merciful, gracious foundation of our relationship with a God who should reject us. All of it's possible by grace. Of course, thinking of this, shouldn't share the gospel without this verse bouncing around somewhere in your mind and coming out of your mouth, at least in principle. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved. The only way you can be saved from the penalty of your sin, which please, again, and I just say this for the sake of, I can wax on about all this stuff and sometimes still hear people in conversations not even understand what the word save means. You understand, based on everything we've said after a half an hour of discussion on hell. That's what we're talking about. Hell exempted from. That's what we mean by saved. By grace, you've been saved, exempted from that because you've trusted and that's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. The trusting is a gift of God. That's what faith is. And the salvation is a gift of God. Not a result of what you've done, not a result of works so that no one may boast. No, no one's gonna experience heaven in a boasting way. So in that sense, I'm already setting myself up for something that doesn't seem to match the title of this section of the lecture. Doesn't seem reasonable. It's not reasonable. That's the thing, that the guilty go free when the innocent get punished. That was the picture of an innocent lamb being slaughtered for my sin in a symbolic way in the Old Testament worship. Now we say, God the Father prepared a body for his son and incarnated him that we celebrate at Christmas every year. And then he gets punished so that I don't have to. That's not very logical. But it is what makes heaven even possible. It's the grace of God, which you know. I hope we know. That's the thing that binds us together, even in all kinds of variations you might find among real Christians. We all understand that, I trust. All right. I use this word a lot, so I hope I can use it in this context. If you've been around my teaching very long, I love the Greek word teleos. Teleos is a Greek word that has a hard time finding its way into English. It usually translated perfect or complete. But I've taught you, I hope, to see it as the proper thing. It's the fit, teleos. It's, as I like to say, if I were writing a lexicon, it would read teleos. It would say something like, ah, just right. That's the idea. It's the right tool for the job. It's when the wrench fits the head of that bolt just perfectly. That's the fit. That's it. It's, it's right. I want to talk about the teleos of God's place, that this is exactly what we would expect for us had we taken the sin problem out of the equation. The reasonableness of a biblical heaven and the reality that it is right. It's right for us. And we'll get to this. We're going to end on this theme, but let's start introducing it now. What God has planned is 
designed for us. That's why, again, I don't mind that word paradise if it's rightly understood because that's the idea. Even in our parlance of modern English, we like to talk about paradise being just the perfect thing. It's Everything's perfect. We talk about the paradise of Eden, the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect place. It was designed perfectly for them. You walked around naked. It must have been the perfect temperature. You get a spouse here that's a perfect spouse. You get trees that are perfect food. You get everything that's just right. It's just teleos. It's perfect. It's just the way it ought to be. You're complete. In the future, as I try to say to my neighbor who's headed for God's judgment, I want to say there's a teleos reality for you. There's something that's made just right for you. It's so right for you that it's described this way. And don't miss this when you read it because we're so used to seeing ourselves as the bride of Christ. That's not the metaphor here. Revelation 21, 2. John says, as he's watching this unfold in this multimedia presentation in, in, in the book of Revelation, an apocalyptic prophecy, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's the Old Testament prophets talked about. This new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now here we are, the people of God. It's prepared as a bride, the city is, a bride adorned for her husband. That's the picture. God has a place, a perfectly prepared place perfectly in the sense of teleos it's perfect it's complete it's got all that we as human beings desire and need it's the right stuff it's the perfect fit we need a perfect fit we don't have a perfect fit and here's the perfect place the bible says is designed for us and there's hardly a better human analogy than that even though in reality it doesn't work out this way right that's the picture of at least on that day, you have that sense that here is this perfect person for me that's perfectly adorned in the perfect way, in the perfect dress, with the perfect makeup and the perfect hair, with the perfect everything. That's it. And she's the one for me. That's the picture. And the picture of a new place, a new reality, a new geography for his people, that's what God has planned. Now, that shouldn't be a hard appeal for our neighbors and friends to say, listen, I know that that's not how you feel about what you're married to now, this planet. I don't mean a person. This planet we're on. And yet God says that's the whole point. At least humanly speaking, from our perspective, God will be glorified in providing for his people a teleos place that's perfectly designed for us. And of course, it's a painless reality, which again, if you want to appeal to a person, and we'll end on this theme again, but just introduce it now, God says, I've got a place for you, and it's a place that has the absence of all the things you hate. And what do we hate the most? We hate stuff that doesn't make us feel good. We hate pain. Revelation 21, 4. Anything that might bring us so much pain that would make us cry, all that's going to be gone. And that's the imagery here. It's poetic imagery, but I'm going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, it's not that Jesus is running down a long list of people with his finger going, wipe, 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 wipe. The picture is poetic. It's the picture of everything that could cause my human beings here that I've made pain. I'm going to take it away. There'll be no cause for crying. You know what they cry a lot at? Funerals, or at least they used to. And you know what? Not going to have any of that. Death shall be no more. Neither is there going to be mourning, and you don't just mourn over death. You can mourn over the loss of a lot of things, but you're not going to have any of that. You're not going to have any crying. You're not going to have any pain anymore. The former things, which describes the current economy of things, it's all gone away. That's the picture. God has designed something that's perfect. Just like in the imagery, the best picture we have of it in human reality, here's this perfect couple coming together. That picture is the picture of what God has designed for people. And that is God's intention. That's his revealed intention. And it's his specific decreed intention with his people, a painless reality. And thankfully, it's a rewarding reality. And I just do this for the sake of symmetry and balance on what we've already talked about. And that is we've talked about variations of moral crimes, if you want to put it that way, moral transgression, and appropriate responses from a just God. Well, there is a justice in that 
on the other side. As it says in Hebrews 6, God is not so unjust to forget the love you've shown and continue to show for his people. This work that you've done and the love that you've expressed, God is not unjust on that side. Well, he's unjust toward you in the sense that he's not punishing you for your sins. He doesn't treat you as your iniquities deserve, but thankfully he can still be just and justifier by putting all of that on Christ. But then he looks at you and he says, okay, now I'm going to reward you in this place. So you will have a rewarding reality. And I'm going to start looking at things like this. Sacrifices. What did you sacrifice? In a sinful world, what did you sacrifice for me? Matthew 19, 21. He says to the rich young ruler, Jesus said, go, if you would be perfect, there's our word, teleos, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. You want this to be just right? Give away your stuff. And why? What's the problem? Because he said, hey, have you kept the law? He claims he did. What's the first law? First law is to have no other God before me. What's the problem? Well, he certainly had his money before him. That was the whole point of this exposure to the disciples of a man who wasn't willing to give up what he had. So he calls him on the God and idol of his life. And he says, give it away. And he said, if you do that, he says, you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Just like these fishermen that left their fishing business, you leave your big legal practice that's made you so rich, leave that behind, give it away and follow me. But the point here is, if you did that, you would have treasure in heaven, great treasure in heaven based on that sacrifice. So I'm not calling you to do anything that wouldn't be rewarded on the other side, treasure in heaven. So we stored up in heaven, it's going to be brought out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And for that guy, there would have been all kinds of rewards for that satisfaction, pleasure, happiness, whatever you might see as a compounding of that reality, that good reality, that teleos reality. Not only for sacrifice, but for suffering. To do the right thing is not easy, and sometimes you have to suffer for doing the right thing. And one of the things you have to put up with is people not liking you for doing the right thing and following Christ. It's going to be one of the sermons I think this Christmas season we'll talk about. Luke six twenty two. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Speaking of himself, of course. Because of your association with me, when people do those things to you, you've suffered. That doesn't feel good when they hate you. It doesn't feel good when they revile you. It's suffering when they spurn your name as evil. But you should rejoice in that day. Wow, how can I do that? You should leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. There's that phrase again. Something's going to be stored up for you in heaven. Which, by the way, Jesus says you ought to be aiming at. You ought to be working at. You ought to be trying to store up treasure for yourself in heaven because there the moth can't eat it up. The rust can't destroy it. The thieves can't break in and steal it. So whatever you do, and I've got two things so far, two categories, when you sacrifice or when you do what's right, even if it it costs you suffering, those are the things God says, I'm going to reward you and it'll be a better experience. I've said this before. People think, and I guess I got to defend this. I'm going to have God. That's all I care about. That is not all you're going to care about. Is that the major thing? Absolutely major thing. The best gift all of us could get is a right relationship with God. And you're going to have that if you're a Christian. But you're going to have a whole lot more based on your sacrifice and what you're willing to put up with for doing the right thing. Those are the things the Bible says he's going to reward you for. And I often talk about it in terms of you might have someone you want to have a meal with that you think would be great. Whatever your sports hero is, your, your musician, somebody you just couldn't, you would, I would just love to have a meal with that person. Well, if I had a meal scheduled for that person, you'd be excited. Think about that person. I mean, I don't know, maybe you're too cool to have an, uh, you know, an earthly you know, celebrity that you want to meet with. But let's just say you had one and you're one of those people. I said, great, I've set that all up. That would make you happy no matter what. But it would also make you even more happy based on what I've scheduled. I could schedule, I'm going to deliver a half a box of Kentucky Fried Chicken for you and, and, a, and two Kirkland bottles of water. And you're going to sit on the curb in front of my house with your celebrity. You'd still have a good time. You'd still be happy. You'd talk about it. But if I 
change that scenario and I put you in some palatial place, maybe some, I don't know, you're going to play golf with this person on, at Pebble Beach. I don't know. You come up with something that you, the accoutrements that you would also compound the joy of that encounter, that would be even better. Well, I don't want to be a mercenary, you know, trying to get treasure in heaven. Well, then you're disobeying Christ. Christ said, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. He's appealing to people. They're sacrificing, and in this case, they're suffering for what? For storing up treasure in heaven. You're not doing it, and I illustrate it this way. I think in my book on rewards, I say, if I said to my seventh grader, you get straight A's this semester, I'm going to throw a big pizza party for you and your friends, and it's going to be great. We're going to go to Disneyland all day. They're going to come back to our house, and we're going to swim, and we're going to have pizza. It'll be great. For my kid to turn his nose up at me and say, I don't want your gifts. I'm just going to get straight A's because you told me to. That's a punky thing to say, and it would not make me happy as your dad. I'm going to say, in my kindness, in motivating you with this reward, we're going to go to Disneyland all day, and you're going to get a pizza party and a pool party. You would dishonor me by not saying, well, that's great. That's extra motivation. Thanks, Dad. I can't wait. And to use that as a motivation for you to work through your algebra or your math or whatever it is that you're struggling with, that would be the right way to use the reward that I've offered to you. Some of you don't want to see rewards as something that you should shoot for. Oh, I want to do it just for the Lord. We're going to cast our crowns at his feet. Do you think he's going to sweep those up in that picture, which again is just an apocalyptic picture of it? Do you think he's going to sweep those up and throw them in the trash bin? I mean, that's, a, that's an absurd thought. The ambition that we should have to serve the Lord based on rewards is a real biblical concept. And it's one that should be part of the way you go about your Christian life. And don't pretend to be so pious that none of that matters to you. It will matter to you. I assure you it will matter to you. Matter of fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, you will suffer loss on that day to the extent that you do not serve him. If you got too much wood and hay and straw instead of gold, silver, precious stones, suffer loss. That's, not a, that's a bad thing. I thought there was no tears. I'm telling you, the placement in the kingdom is going to matter. It's going to matter a lot. This won't be a, some long-term suffering. And then you say, well, I don't think that's right. I want, a, I want a communist heaven because that seems more fair. Well, it's not fair. That's the whole point of a just God rewarding people according to their sacrifice and their suffering. And I am saying the reason you don't like inequity because you go to your Datsun B210 in the parking lot and someone you park next to the Tesla and the reason you can't handle that driving home is your car won't start and his doesn't even make any noise and goes off at 80 miles an hour. The reason you can't stand that is because you got a fallen heart. That's the problem. You covet. You're greedy. You have a problem with the, with the law of God. But one day, you're not going to have any of that. One day, you'll actually be able to rejoice with those who rejoice. And if you go to someone else's house in the New Jerusalem and it's better than yours, you're actually going to go, I'm so glad you have this. There won't be greed. There won't be envy. There won't be coveting. But there will be enjoyment based on those rewards. And of course, for service. Matthew chapter 10 Verse 42 says, whoever gives one of these little ones, that's defined in the context as those who have faith in Christ. We're not talking about children. We're talking about children of God. It could be an 80-year-old child of God. Even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple. He's a disciple. Then truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. God's keeping track. Even of things as small as, can I get you something? Even tonight, had you done that for someone just because they are valued in God's family and say, I want to serve you. Even if you went out and got them a, a, a plate of food tonight, that, the Bible says, God says, I'm keeping track of all that. There's a sense of justice. Just like those who will have the books open to be judged according to their deeds, your sins are all appended to the cross, but there will be a set of deeds you will be judged on that he analogizes with gold, silver, and precious stones, and it will be a golden moment for every little thing you've done that can be counted as sacrifice, suffering, or service. 
for the Lord. It's going to be embodied afterlife. I think this is important for us to clarify. Why? Because 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, In our hearts we should honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet to do it with gentleness and respect. You're saying, I am hoping to be in another world, in another place, being rewarded with a God who has promised me these things without any reference to my sin. That's where I'm going. Matter of fact, I want to be heavenly minded. I want to set my mind on things above. They're going to go, why do you hope in that? Well, they're not going to have much hope in that if they don't see the reality, the tactile reality of what you're headed toward. You got to get this clear in your mind. Why? Because you got you got smart Alex like Mark Twain who say things like, "Oh, you can go to heaven if you want to. I'd rather stay here in Bermuda." Mark Twain loved Bermuda and he went there to vacation when he had his health problems. He was uh, he loved Bermuda. It's beautiful. And you know what? I've been to Bermuda and it is beautiful. Here's some pictures I took in Bermuda. That's not true. I got these off the internet. But I could have taken these pictures. This is what Bermuda looks like. I even played golf on Bermuda. It's a beautiful place. It is beautiful. There's lots to do in Bermuda. And you know why Mark Twain pictured himself in Bermuda as heaven? Because he could go there and he could eat. He had beautiful views. Who knows? He might have ridden a bike around the island with palm trees and perfect weather. He might have signed a couple contracts for a book or a deal. He might have even thought about doing some kind of creative project. He might have walked and strolled down the streets in downtown Bermuda and in the city there, I forget the name of it, with all the brightly colored buildings and all kinds of things to do, all kinds of things to see. He might have sat and read the classics on the beach. That's why he wants to stay in Bermuda. And he looks at you, his next door neighbor, talking about heaven. And he pictures something completely ethereal, something see-through, cotton ball clouds, harps, see-through bodies, Casper the friendly ghost. And he says what a lot of non-Christians today say, why would you ever want that? Well, maybe you are not pitching a proper afterlife, and you need to think about it in terms of an embodied afterlife. That's where it starts. It's an embodied afterlife, and let's talk a little bit about it. This bodily existence, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that is how you were, here's our word, ontologically designed. You as a being are designed in two component parts. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and then you became an ontological being. You became a living creature. That picture of spiritual, non-physical, software, and hardware. And those two things combined, the biology and the spiritual aspect of you, the hardware and software, that makes you a person made in the image of God in that your spiritual component has intellect, emotion, and will, and reflexive nature, and all the things that reflect the attributes of God, the communicable attributes of God at least. That's who you are. Now, if you want to think about yourself as Casper the Friendly Ghost, well, go tell Twain that, who's experienced some of the glory of God in Bermuda, and he's going to say, why would I have any interest in that? When you talk about the afterlife to your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, can you help them to see this is a bodily existence? Matter of fact, it'll be a bodily existence for you in punishment if you don't respond. There will be a resurrection of both the just, which is the word righteous, and the unjust. And how am I made righteous? Through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So you can put it this way. There's a resurrection of Christians and a resurrection of non-Christians. That's how we were designed. The temporary nature, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, of death is to have body separated from spirit. And what you have in that, the cleft of those two is called death. The minute your spirit leaves your body, that is death. That's not natural. According to 2 Corinthians 5, you are at that point metaphorically speaking, naked 
And God has not designed you to be naked. He says, you got a tent here on this earth. And I don't want to be naked, Paul says, and leave that tent. Matter of fact, I long to be clothed with this building I have from God. It's not temporal. It's not going to die like a tent that's going to blow away in the wind. It's a permanent structure. God is going to build me a new body. And he elaborates that on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and says, this is the reality of a bodily existence. That's the picture. Again, many of those who sleep in the dust, that doesn't mean some of them. That means there'll be a lot of them. They're going to awake and come to everlasting life. Those bodies will be reanimated, some to shame and some to everlasting contempt. So everyone's going to get their ontological existence back the way God designed it, spirit and body. First Corinthians 15 talks a little bit about that. We've preached about that at length. So it is a resurrection of the dead. What was perishable, it used to wear out like old bananas on your shelf. It's raised imperishable, sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It was, it was ugly and wrinkly when it died, but it's going to be raised beautifully. It was weak. It had all kinds of limitations, but it's going to be raised in power. It was a natural body. It was sown a natural body. It, it did what, what nature in its sinful fallen world desires to do. It has a bent to sin, but it's going to be raised a spiritual body. Just like you say, Fred in your small group is a spiritual guy. He makes godly decisions more often than maybe you do. And that's the point of the body that's going to be raised. It will be a body that wants and desires the things of the spirit. It's going to be put in a physical environment. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's a place where God dwells, a dimension where he in some way dwells in unapproachable light. First Timothy chapter 6, and there's an earth. We know about it. We have a tactile experience as an embodied, enmeshed spirit in a body. We have dust of the earth encasing a spirit. That's the experience I have. You're going to have a new one of those. My spirit's going to be encased in my body. Only it's going to be a resurrected body, and that's going to be a physical environment that I live in. It's a new earth, not a different reality. It's a new reality of the old form. Romans 8, 22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Creation wants this sinful era to be over, and so we should want the same But what we're hoping for, what we're putting our trust in, that's what the biblical hope is. It's not wishing. It's my confident assurance of the future is in a new creation, a redeemed body, not a new body, a reconstituted, glorified body and a new creation. It's physical, high wall, 12 gates, names on the gates. We've talked about this before. Foundations, apostles on the foundation stones. It's a physical place described in physical terms. Jesus came, Luke 24. He ate with his disciples. He wanted to prove to them this is a tactile body. It's a real body. It's got teeth, got taste buds, got an esophagus, got a digestive tract. Give me that broiled fish. He ate it in their presence. It's a physical environment. Just to tell your non-Christian neighbors that there's going to be eating there is a huge theological leap for them. Oh, I thought you were floating around on a cloud with a harp and you wanted me to get excited about that. All right, three things real quick. Help in pointing to the afterlife is how I put it on your worksheet. I didn't change it here. Initially, take one was our assistance. Here are three things, three assistants that help us in pointing our non-Christian friends to the afterlife. Number one, remind them of their fallen bodies, which shouldn't be hard to do, depending on what kind of shape they're in. Remind them that according to Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread. They come home from work just like you do, frustrated, hard, till you return to the ground. That's not a very hopeful thing. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Ask people about their lives. Help them get honest with you, that their life is a hard struggle. And they're getting older and they're hurting more and it's getting more difficult to get around and they're longing for younger days 
And you know what? God is keeping his promise and they're going to return to dust. Jonathan Edwards put this so well. If we spend our lives in the pursuit of temporal happiness as riches or sensual pleasures, credit and esteem from men, delight in our children and the prospect of seeing them well brought up and well settled and all the other stuff, etc. All these things will be of little significance to us. Why? Death will blow up all of our hopes and put an end to these enjoyments. That's why you didn't want him as your pastor. Not only sinners in the hands of the angry God sermon, but he's going to preach stuff like this to you. I'm telling you this because he's a realist and he's helping you understand there is no hope in this life. Physically, it's going downhill and it's going downhill fast for most of it. And that's a good thing. That helps us. It's the promise of the deterioration of this life. Secondly, our fallen world, which shouldn't be hard also to see. Not only do our bodies stink, our world stinks. Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3. This is how the book starts. Read the whole book. I have to read it on my birthday every year in September. It's in the DVR. Happy birthday, Pastor Mike. Read Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Parlay that. Just like Edward said, your body and all the things you want from this life, listen, all of it's going to go away. Death is the ultimate intrusion in that. And as Lewis rightly said, Hey, in this life, as it's so empty, it's vain, it's chasing after them. If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The fallen world should help you realize that there's an apologetic built into that, an assistant that is helping to point them toward the afterlife. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. No, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Oh yeah, you've had some moments and chapters and days and experiences that have been good. I mean, that should, at least as you look at the overall disappointment of the world that we live in, that that's a foretaste of the reality of what's coming, that God has a place that's designed, the teleos place. Thirdly and lastly, our fallen nature. Even in our redemption, I hope you see this. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Even in our Christianity, we see in a mirror dimly. That's even the best we can do in our redemptive lives at this point. But then face to face, something better is coming. I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Things are going to change. This life and the nature of being encased in a fallen world, in a fallen body. Man, I just, I can't even have what I need with God. First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's true. And we revel in that as best we can. But even the Christian life kind of stinks, doesn't it, sometimes? It's like, how? it's not even, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Well, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There will be something better. Our nature itself, even in our fallen human nature, there's something we long for. Augustine said it well, man is one of your creatures, Lord. He's speaking in a prayer here. And his instinct is to praise you. He bears about him the mark of death, the sign of his own sin, to remind him that you thwart the proud. But still, since he is part of your creation, he wishes to praise you. I mean, he hopes, he tries through a glass dimly. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you because you made us for yourselves. And our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you. And you're not even going to find it in this life, in your Christian life. I mean, that rest isn't going to be, even Hebrews 4 says, until ultimately we enter that rest. Strive to enter that rest. Did we just read that in our DBR? The afterlife. Our world helps us in this regard, as fallen as it is, to point our neighbors and friends and coworkers to something better. That's the note I hope to end on last week. In the meantime, though, 
as Jesus would warn us, we've got to get real about the problem of sin and underscoring the equity of God's justice and to realize we've got a problem. If we can see it, we've got a great option called the new heaven and the new earth. Let's hope we can make some progress as some of the people we're dialoguing with right now about the gospel. Pray with me. God, thank you for the reminder from these varied passages and thoughts that we're trying to think after yours that help us remind our neighbors, friends, and coworkers that they're not made here for this planet. I mean, they reflect it all the time, even in their coarseness and their frustration and their anger and even the way they entertain themselves sometimes. We're reminded that they just know there's something wrong. And that thing that's wrong is sin. Sin first in our lives and then the sentence of sin in the fabric of creation and in the world and in our fallenness in our bodies. And so we look to, we anticipate knowing the mechanism of our forgiveness of our forgiveness is Christ that we anticipate something so much better. God, get us there. We can't wait to be there. As the early church said, and sadly because of the relative good comforts and the conveniences we have, we don't long for it the way the early church did or even the church through the years has, but we want to long for that place. We want to put our minds on things above. We want to set our treasure in heaven, knowing that where our treasure is, our heart is going to be also. Get our heart there, God, please. And we're a very unique time in history where we have a lot of conveniences and a lot of advantages, a lot of technology. But even with all that, people are sitting in their homes tonight playing games on their iPads and watching shows they don't really like and getting ready to go into debt, spending money at the holidays for people they don't even care much for and trying to impress people that they don't respect and going to bed at night frustrated and sometimes just dulling their pain by the alcohol or prescription drugs or illicit drugs in their life. And God, we we have an answer. We don't get to experience it all now, but we get a taste of it. And I pray that you would help us in our conversations with non-Christians this week to be better about representing what is to come. God, thanks for this reminder. Let us realize what's at stake, heaven and hell, and get us prepared to have good, cogent conversations, knowing that you can make your appeal through us, that people need to be reconciled to you. God, we pray you give us success and fruitfulness in this, in Jesus' name. Amen.